Leviticus chapter 10 through chapter 15, selected verses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches his carcass shall be unclean until the evening. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not, may not be eaten. If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. When the days of a purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. The priest shall make an atonement for her and she shall be clean. When a person has on the skin of their body a swelling or an eruption or a spot and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of their body, then they shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of their body. When the priest has examined them, he shall pronounce them unclean and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus, the priest shall make an atonement for them, and they shall be clean. Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. The word of the Lord. We're in a series on the book of Leviticus, and there is no doubt that Leviticus is one of the least read books in the Bible. And one of the big reasons for that is because of passages like this. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. This passage is saying that certain kinds of food, or childbirth, or skin diseases, or mold in your clothes, your house, or bodily discharges like pus, blood, or semen, that all of that stuff can make you unclean and therefore unfit for the presence of God. Now, nobody gasped out loud, but inside of our minds, inside of our hearts, we're gasping for horror because this sounds so primitive, so archaic, so retrograde. We say, how degrading. And that is a very understandable response. Um, however, 
um, the reason that we have that response is because we don't understand what this passage is really showing us. If we did understand, uh, we would see that in reality, th uh, this passage is touching on uh, one of the most pressing, urgent, and crucial issues in our world today. What is that? Well, let me get at it by asking you a question. Are you at all concerned about the state of the world today? I mean, little kids get gunned down in the streets. People are being gunned down in their homes. Um, our world is a mess. Or for instance, have you ever noticed how many apocalyptic and dystopian shows there are on TV? Do you think that's a coincidence? Or do you think maybe that is a reflection of how we modern people feel about the world that we live in? So, you know, one of the most recent shows like this is called Years and Years. It's about a British family between the year 2019, right now, and then 15 years in the future, 2034. And at the very beginning of the show, one of the characters, Rosie, just had a baby. Her whole family gathers in the hospital to celebrate this joyful moment with her. And her brother, Danny, takes the baby in his arms, and uh, he's looking up, there's a news show on TV in which a, a, a new populist leader is, you know, talking. And it's not just some flibber to gibbet talking about some silly nonsense. It's a really actually a very dangerous person who's just coming into power and, and, and is actually saying some very dangerous things. But they're standing there, Danny's holding the baby, and one of the other family members says, hey, Danny, maybe you'll have one of your own one of these days. And Danny looks at the TV set and he says this, I don't know if I could have a kid in a world like this. Things were okay a few years ago, before 2008. Do you remember back then? We used to think politics was boring. And now I worry about everything. I don't know what to worry about first. Never mind the government, it's the banks. They terrify me. And it's not even them, it's the companies, the brands, the corporations. They treat us like algorithms while they go around poisoning the air and the temperature and the rain and don't even start me on ISIS. Oh, and now we've got America. Never thought I'd be scared of America in a million years. But we've got fake news and false facts. I don't even know what's true anymore. What sort of a world are we in? Because if it's like this now, and then he looks at the little baby in his arms and he says, what's it going to be like for you? What sort of a world are we in? And what's it going to be like for you, for me, for all of us? That is one of the most pressing questions in our world today. Believe it or not, this passage in Leviticus addresses that question head on. How? Well, it all begins with this language that God is using. If you look at the top of the passage, God tells Aaron to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Or if you look at the bottom of the third paragraph in verse 47, God tells Israel to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean. Now, here's the thing. When God says to distinguish or make a distinction, that's the same Hebrew word. And what God is saying is, I, I want you to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. This distinction is the key to everything. So let's ask three questions about this distinction. What is this distinction about? Why is it so important to make this distinction? And what does it mean for us today? Okay? What is this distinction between clean and unclean all about? Why is it so important? And what does it mean for us today? All right? First, first, 
What's this distinction all about? Remember, we were just kind of going through the categories a moment ago, and uh, you know, let me remind you of them. We're talking about food, childbirth, skin diseases, mold, and bodily discharges, and I felt like I almost should have given a trigger warning for germaphobes. <laughs> but God is basically telling us that any of these things can make us unclean. So the question is, what does that mean? Well, there's some clues to help us understand. Uh, and the first one is this. God says that certain animals are clean and other animals are unclean. Now, what's really interesting is the language that God uses to talk about this. So if you look again at the third paragraph, in verse 46, it says, this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters, and every creature that swarms on the ground. Now, if you were with us last week, you already have a head start on this because you know, ah, this language is a callback to Genesis chapter 1. This language is a callback to the very beginning of creation when God created life. In Genesis chapter 1, you go through and he makes all these different categories of animals, and and, and he says, oh, these are the, the beasts on the ground and the birds in the air, and the fish in the sea, and all the creeping, swarming things that creep and swarm on the ground. Here's clue number one. We're being pointed to God's creation of life. Okay? Clue number two. If you look at the second paragraph, in verse 39, it says, If any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. So, God is saying, listen, don't touch dead things. If you touch something dead, you get infected. You become unclean, all right? Now, what do these clues mean? If we put them all together, what does this mean? Most commentators and scholars and, and people who for centuries have been studying the book of Leviticus say that these, this distinction between clean and unclean has something to do with the distinction between life and death. And as we go throughout the rest of the categories, we see, oh, These distinctions are showing us something about what happens when life gets really close to death. So, for instance, childbirth. You know, childbirth is one of the most joyful moments in human experience. New life is entering the world. But um, God says that if a woman gives birth, now she's unclean. And it's not the act of giving birth. It's actually, if you read through, and we didn't print everything because it's so long. These are covering five whole chapters. But it, it's really the loss of blood that God is talking about. Now think about that. Loss of blood represents loss of life. Because even in the most joyful moment in human experience, bringing new life into the world, um, For ancient people especially, giving birth was one of the most dangerous things you could possibly do. I mean, the mortality rate for women was off the charts back then. And the reason God says this makes somebody unclean is because the loss of blood represents a loss of life. That even in the midst of life coming into the world, death is hovering right there. So if you go through the rest of the categories, you see the same thing happening. For instance, um, think about skin diseases. That's decay in the skin. Decay is a form of death. Or mold. That mold, again, that's a form of decay. It's a form of death. Or um, bodily discharges, and especially the passage really focuses on blood and semen, both of which are life liquids. Are you starting to see what this is about? The distinction between clean and unclean is a way of heightening our awareness 
of the distinction between life and death. It's a way of getting really clear about what happens when life comes right up against death, okay? Now, um, this is a way of telling us that, that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's infected by death, a world that's touched by death. Now, here's one thing that's really important to understand. When Leviticus says that all of these things can make you unclean, that does not mean sinful. It doesn't mean sinful, okay? So, for instance, go back to childbirth. A woman gives birth to a child, but it focuses on the blood and says the loss of blood makes a woman unclean, but it does not mean sinful. You know, now, that is the way the ancient world thought about this. Um, if something bad happened to you, for instance, if you got a skin disease or if you got mold in your house or something bad happened to you, then the ancient world would look at that and go, oh, that person did something bad. They sinned, therefore God is judging them. That's the way the ancient world looked at stuff like this. But Leviticus is very explicitly not saying that. So again, childbirth, a woman gives birth to a child, there's a loss of blood, but it does not make her sinful. And you see that very clearly um, if you look um, at, the, uh, at the fourth paragraph. A woman who gives birth is unclean for seven days, but then she brings an offering. And notice in verse 8, it says, the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now, if, if you've been with us before this, you'll know earlier in Leviticus, we just went through the series of five offerings or five sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. The sin offering is one of those offerings, and it, and it says over and over again that if you sin... Then you bring an offering, and it always says, and the priest shall make atonement for you, and you shall be forgiven. That's the language that it uses when there's sin involved. But here, it doesn't say anything about forgiveness because there's nothing to forgive. Friends, the same thing, for instance, it's true with skin disease. Um, if you look at the top of the next page, uh, if someone gets a skin disease, they go to the priest, the priest offers an offering for them, and then it says, the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be clean. There's nothing about forgiveness here. Friends, here's what we need to understand. The distinction between clean and unclean is a distinction between life and death. It's a way of getting really clear about the reality that we live in a fallen world, a world that's touched by death, infected by death. Now, here's the thing. The reason death is in the world is because sin is in the world. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But the distinction between clean and unclean is a way of heightening our awareness that we live in a fallen world, a world where, where everything is infected by death, where, where death, life is constantly in danger of, of death, and, and getting really, really clear about the line between those two things. So it's kind of like when you're getting on and off a subway train, like at the Metro. I don't know if you've ever been to the UK, you know, in London, in the subway stations there, they have signs that say, mind the gap. It's all over the place, on the trains and the stations, mind the gap. And not only that, it's not just the, the signs. When, when the train stops and the doors open, there's a, a, an announcement that comes over the loudspeaker that says, mind the gap. <laughs> Why do they make such a big deal about this? It's because there's a gap between the train and the platform. And if you don't pay attention to that gap, that gap could represent the difference between life and death. You could die. In this passage, God is saying, mind the gap. It's a way of heightening our awareness of getting really, really clear about the reality that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's touched by death, infected by death. 
and getting really clear about that reality that even in the most joyful, life-giving moments of life, like giving birth, death is always there. It's always hovering. It's always near. God is saying, mind the gap. This is one of the main things that this distinction between clean and unclean is showing us. But secondly, we also need to find out why is it so important to make this distinction? The simple answer is because nothing touched by death can come into the presence of God. So we went through all these categories and we see all of these things are in some way touched by death, infected by death. Nothing touched by death can come into the presence of God. But what does that mean? Why is that? Well, Remember the backstory. Leviticus is part of an ongoing story that began in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God created the world to be a place of goodness, beauty, and perfection. And in the middle of creation, God put the Garden of Eden. Have you ever heard of the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden was not just a dwelling place for human beings. It was the dwelling place for God. So the Garden of Eden was a place of deep, rich, intimate, beautiful connection and relationship with God. The world was perfect. Our relationship with God was perfect. Now, obviously, that is not the kind of world we live in today, is it? We live in a world, as we just saw, that's touched by death. It's infected by death. But why is that? The reason is because the reason death is in the world is because sin is in the world. As we go throughout the story, Genesis 3, the first human beings rebelled against God. They said, God, we don't trust you. We want to have control over our own lives. We don't want you to be Lord over our lives. We want to be Lords over our own lives. Basically, they were building their life and their identity on something other than God. That's probably one of the simplest definitions of sin that we could have. Sin is building your life and your identity on something, anything other than God. And think about that language for just a moment. You know, you be in control of your life. You build and construct your own identity. Does that sound familiar? That, that really is exactly what our culture tells us it means to be a modern, authentic, liberated human being. A modern, Western, secular culture says you have to determine your very self. You should never let anybody else tell you who you are. Any externally imposed identity, that's oppressive. Don't let anybody do that to you. You have to, you have to do that for yourself. You have to um, look inside. You have to listen to what your heart is, is saying to you. And then you have to boldly assert that to the world around you. Friends, when the very first human beings did that to God, sin entered the world because their relationship with God fell apart. And as a result of that, death entered the world. Everything else started to fall apart. So that all of the troubles and the problems and the diseases and the, and the um, disasters that we see in our world are a result of sin entering the world. The reason death is in the world is because sin is in the world. And it's only when we understand that that we could come back to this question. Why is it so important to make a distinction between clean and unclean? The reason is because um, sin and death, nothing touched by death and sin can come into the presence of God. That means that the outer condition of death in the Bible is always connected to the inner condition of sin. The outward reality of death is, is always a, a sign pointing to the deeper inward reality of sin. In the Bible, that's always true. 
And so the answer is nothing infected by sin and death can come into the presence of God because God is life. God is wholeness. God is, is vitality and well-being. Nothing infected by sin and death can come in there. And, and even though that sounds kind of odd and kind of jarring to us modern people, if you think about it at the most basic level, it really makes sense. For instance, if you are getting ready to go on a hot date with somebody really special, but you just got home from the gym, you're a little stinky. Are you going to take a shower before you go on that date? I hope so. (laughs) Or say you had a cup of coffee on the way home from the gym. Are you going to maybe consider brushing your teeth? Uh, You're going to get in there with dental floss and mouthwash. You are going to make sure that you are as squeaky clean as possible before you come into the presence of this very special person. We know that, that special circumstances, special spaces, spaces of life and sanctity and, and goodness and beauty, that, that unclean things can't come in there. If you're going to have an operation, do you want that doctor coming in, you know, sneezing and runny nose all over the place? Do you want somebody leaving a half-empty bag of fast food lying on the counter over there? No! The space is sacred. The space is holy. That means the space is a space of life. Nothing touched by sin and death can come in there. Okay? That's all that God is saying here. So these clean laws are are all about who is able to come inside the tent. Remember, the tent is the place of God's presence. The tent is the place of God's new creation, new life. It's like the Garden of Eden 2.0. That's what the tent is. And, and God wants to welcome us inside of the tent, but, but if the tent is the place of new life and new creation, then nothing touched by sin or death can come into that place, all right? Now, what does this mean for the Israelites as we look at these laws? Practically speaking, what, what was this doing for them? Well, think about where they were at at this point in their life. Not more than a year before this, they had been in slavery, These are people that have just been liberated from from grinding slavery. They they had been, their whole lives, 24-7, were filled with things like death, abuse, degradation, poverty. They had been entrenched and enmeshed in a system of crushing oppression and degradation and idolatry. So think about it. If you've ever come out of, uh, of a situation like that, maybe if you ever come out of, you know, like a bad relationship, or some kind of addiction, or some other kind of dysfunction in your life. You know that when you come out of that, you have to find a whole new way to live. The old, your old way of living was a mess. You need a new way of living that points to life. So for instance, when I was 28 years old, some of you may know this about me, I went to rehab to get sober from alcoholism and drug addiction. And when I first went into rehab, my old way of life was a mess, I needed a new way of living, uh, a new set of habits and rituals and practices and disciplines that would habituate me to this new way of life, a new way of living in wholeness, living in health, okay? And so when I got to rehab, they said, okay, Eric, and it had to be really basic, really simple, really clear, really easy to follow. So they said things to me like, every morning, 7 a.m., you're, you're getting up and going to a meeting. You're going to talk to other alcoholics about how to stay sober. And then you're going to go home and take a shower. You're going to do it every day. 
And then you're going to go to work. And then you're going to come home from work. And then you're going to go to another meeting. Really clear, basic, simple, easy to follow, new habits, new rituals. The old way pointed to death. The new way points to life. Okay? And by the way, that was the beginning of my prayer life too. They gave me really clear, basic, easy to follow instructions on how to pray. Eric, every morning, hit your knees and ask God to help you stay sober that day. And every night before you go to bed, hit your knees and thank God for another day of sobriety. That was the beginning of my prayer life. But we need habits, new rituals, new practices, new rhythms in our life. The old way points to death. The new way points to life. That is exactly what's going on with the Israelites here. The old way points to death. The new way points to life. That everything, notice all of these rituals and all of these clean laws, all of them have to do with pretty much the basic stuff of life that filled their lives every day. Babies. Clothes, food, housing, what to do when you get sick. I mean, this is just the basic stuff of life. So um, if you look at these laws, you you see that 24-7, their lives were filled with rituals that would remind them of two big things. First, it reminds them that we live in a fallen world. That we live in a world that's infected by sin, infected by death, it's touched by these things, and that nothing touched by sin and death can come into the presence of of a living God. These laws would remind them every single day that they needed to be liberated out of sin and death. But secondly, these laws also showed them that God had promised a way out of death and into life. And we didn't read that part of the laws because it's so many chapters and so much information. But not only are there laws here that, that, that tell you what happens to make you unclean, there are also laws that tell you how do you get clean? So it's things like, wait seven days. Seven days is the number of wholeness and completion in the Bible. Take a bath. Shave your whole body. Become like a newborn baby. New life, new birth. Or go to the priest, make an offering. The priest is going to pronounce you clean. Not only are there laws, the unclean laws, that tell you how you get unclean. Those laws tell you that you need to be liberated out of sin and death. The the laws that tell you how to get clean are showing you that God has promised a way out of death and into life. That's what's happening here. The reason God gave them these rituals was to press two huge foundational realities into the imagination of their lives every single day. First, we live in a fallen world and we need to be liberated out of sin and death. Second, God has promised a way out of death and into life. And that leads to our last point. We've just seen what this distinction is about. It's a a distinction between life and death. The reason it's so important to make this distinction is because nothing touched by sin and death can come into the presence of God, into the presence of life. But lastly, what does all of this mean for us today? You know, Jesus himself actually tells us what all of this means for us today. You know, these clean laws would have been a daily part of Jewish life um, during Jesus's lifetime. In fact, Jesus himself, as an Orthodox Jewish person, would have participated in these clean laws himself. The interesting thing about this is in Mark chapter 7, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is having a rather heated conversation with some religious leaders. They're disputing with Jesus because Jesus was apparently not obeying the clean laws with regard to food. And it's in the midst of that conversation that Jesus says something really interesting. He basically says, look, It's not the food that goes into you from the outside that makes you unclean. It's the stuff that comes up from out of your heart. That's what makes you unclean. 
And understand something. Jesus is actually being very, very faithful to the purpose of these clean laws. Because remember, the purpose is to show two realities. We live in a fallen world and we need to be liberated from sin and death. God has promised a way out of death and into life. Jesus is being very faithful to that when he says this, because Jesus says, look, food isn't what really makes you unclean. You know, there's a really interesting comment. It's almost like a little editorial note in the Gospel of Mark. But when Jesus says that, it says that he declared all foods clean. Jesus declares all foods are now clean. Now, here's the thing. Is Jesus saying the food laws were a bad idea to begin with? No. Is Jesus abolishing the clean laws? No. He's actually making a pronouncement. It says he declared. It's Jesus is instituting a new reality. He declared all foods clean. Basically, Jesus was saying, as he said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount in another gospel, Jesus said, look, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So Jesus is pointing to the reality, everything that the food laws, the clean laws were pointing to, he's pointing to that and he's saying, look, all of these things, the childbirth, the food, the skin diseases, the mold, the bodily discharges, all of that is pointing to a deeper reality. I'm here to deal with the reality. And the way I'm doing that is not by abolishing the clean laws, but by fulfilling them. In, in essence, remember, what is the reality? We live in a fallen world, touched by sin and death. No one is immune. We all are infected by that. We all participate in that. Jesus is saying, I've come to deal with that reality. I am cleansing the world from all the filth and the dirt and the scars of sin. I am cleansing the world from all the death and the infection and, and the illness and the sickness and all the disasters and things that come into this world as a result of sin. I came to deal with all of that. But the question is, how did Jesus do that? You know, when Jesus stood trial and then was led through the streets of Jerusalem to his execution on the cross, you know what was happening to Jesus at that time? He had just been beaten and flogged. The flog was leather strips with pieces of metal embedded in it. It would literally pull pieces of skin out of your flesh. When Jesus was led through the streets of Jerusalem, he was smeared with blood, unclean. When Jesus was led through the streets of the city, he was covered with filth and dirt and grime and scum, unclean. When Jesus was led through the streets of Jerusalem, carrying the cross on his shoulders, he would have been drenched in spit. The spit of people who were mocking him and ridiculing him and, and scorning him and jeering at him. Jesus was unclean. And when he got to the cross, as the prophet Isaiah says, he carried all of our sicknesses. He carried all of our sorrows, all of the sin, all of the scars, all of the filth was loaded on top of Jesus. All of the death and the infection and, and, and the... Um, the filth of death was loaded on top of Jesus. Jesus became literally unclean for us so that we could be made new and cleansed in him. Because remember what this distinction is about. The distinction between clean and unclean is about what happens when death gets really close to life. Friends, on the cross, the very source of life, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, got so close to death that he was engulfed by death. Jesus literally fell headlong into the gap so that he could deliver you and me and all of us up out of the gap so that he could liberate us out of death and into life. 
Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Not only do we need to be liberated from sin and death, but Jesus now is not just showing us that God has promised to do it. Jesus is the provision of that deliverance. He's provided the way out of death and into life. So what does that mean for us today? Remember, Jesus has now fulfilled these laws. So, so in this time, in this day and age, we don't observe these clean laws anymore because Jesus has already fulfilled them. But, but what does that mean for you and me today? Well, here's one big encouragement for you. You know, one of the things the gospel really does for us is that in many ways, it doesn't so much tell us what we need to start doing as it helps us understand something that we can now stop doing. And, and what do I mean by that? You know, we all live with uh, a sense of shame, a sense of guilt. Um, we all live with feelings of insecurity and insignificance and inconsequentiality. We all deal with that. Even modern psychology would say that, wouldn't deny that human beings struggle with these things. The big question is, what do we do with that? What we do often is we have cleansing projects of our own, our accomplishments, our achievements, um, our reputation, romance, politics, our moral performance, our ethical performance, our spiritual or religious performance. Um, uh, you know, all of those things, family, whatever it might be, all of those are ways of trying to, to cleanse ourselves, to justify ourselves, to redeem ourselves, ways that we try to deal with, with the, the shame and the guilt and the mess in our lives, the, the feelings of insecurity and insignificance and inconsequentiality. All of those are ways of trying to deal with that. Jesus is saying, the more you see Jesus on the cross cleansing you from all of that stuff, the less you need to keep doing it in your own life. The less you need to keep trying so hard to cleanse yourself. That's, it's exhausting doing that, isn't it? In addition to that, the pride that thinks we can do that is making the sin and death in our lives even worse. It, it makes the sickness worse. Friends, and here's the thing, you know, it's not, that is not to say that things like work or family or school or um, romance or any of that stuff is bad. It doesn't mean we should forsake those things. This does change the way we relate to those things. This does change the way we engage those things. So as, as you see Jesus cleansing you, lifting you up out of death and into new life, the, the, what the gospel really does is it begins to give you new rituals, or, or, or I like to think of them as new rhythms or habits, or disciplines, or practices. These are things that we do not in a legalistic way, but nonetheless, the, the rituals that reflect and shape our life um, shape and reflect the reality of our life. I mean, think about that. The rituals that shape your life are, shape the reality of your life. So, you know, think about the tablets and the screens and the, um, and the phones and, and the technology in our lives. Do you not think that you're being shaped by that stuff? Do you not think that those are a form of ritual, a form of habit, a way of habituating you to a certain way of life? Of course it is. The rituals of our lives shape the realities of our lives. Christianity, the gospel gives you a new set of habits and rituals and rhythms. Again, not a legalistic thing, but what are those things? One of them is um, we can learn how to, to pray prayers of confession and lament. We just did that a little bit earlier. But, you know, Christianity is intensely realistic about the reality that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. 
that we live in a fallen world, a world touched by sin and death. So as Christians, we don't have to deny that or ignore that or, or try to stuff that. We can be intensely realistic that God created this world to be good, but the world is touched by death. And a lot of times, it's hard to do that. We don't want to do that. It's, it's, it's vulnerable. It's threatening. The gospel gives you resources to confess the mess, to just confess the mess so that you don't have to deny or stuff or ignore what's going on in the world or what's going on in your life. It gives us resources for confessing the mess. The gospel also gives us new rhythms of hope. We're going to come to one of them in just a few minutes, the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is a rhythm or a ritual of hope that is pressing into your imagination the reality that God is making all things new. That this world is a good place. This world is a worthwhile place. And God isn't ditching this world. He's renewing this world. He's restoring this world. This table is like a teaser trailer pointing us to the reality that one day God is going to restore this world. And this is like an appetizer inviting us to the feast to end all feasts because at the end of time, we're going to sit down with God and we're going to feast with him in his presence. There are ways of confessing the mess, ways, rhythms of hope in our lives. The gospel gives us resources for that. So if you're here this morning, maybe you're exploring faith. Maybe you're not sure what you believe about Jesus or about God. We are so honored that you are here. And you may have questions. One of the big reasons that we're here is to engage your questions. You should ask your questions. There are all kinds of questions. Why would God allow a world full of evil and suffering? How can we believe in a religion in which so many of its adherents are, are contributing to the awful mess of this world? I mean, those are really good questions. Those questions deserve an answer. But friends, I wouldn't be honest or faithful to you if I didn't tell you that there comes a point in each one of our lives when the endless asking of questions can, can begin to become kind of theoretical and abstract. It becomes a way of, of avoiding confessing the mess in our own lives. It becomes a way of keeping God at arm's length, a, a kind of a smokescreen that keeps us from really examining the mess in our own lives. Because at the end of the day, there's really only one question, ultimately, that you're going to need to grapple with. And the question is, who is Jesus? You know, those other questions, those are important questions. Those are good questions. We should wrestle with those questions. But if Jesus is not the risen cosmic king of the universe, then none of those other questions matter. But if Jesus is the risen cosmic king of the universe, no question matters more than that. So if you're exploring faith this morning, I want to encourage you, yes, ask your questions, but don't let your questions keep you from confessing the mess in your, in your own life. In other words, don't let it keep you from really dealing with the reality that the world isn't just a mess. Your life is a mess too. And Jesus is the answer to that mess. Or maybe if you're here this morning and you do believe you are a follower of Jesus, but maybe you're struggling with the church. And boy, there's a lot of you out there right now. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning, but you're like hanging on by a thread. You know, a lot of the Pew reports recently talk about the nuns, the rise of the nuns. That's the people that when they're asked to check their box of religious affiliation, they say, none. No religious affiliation. Not the, you know, little ladies walking around in habits. Not those kinds of nuns. Nuns means no religious affiliation. It's a big, I don't know, uh, kind of a big phenomenon in modern Western culture right now. The rise of the nuns. You know, there's another group probably within that group, but you're the duns. 
you believe in Jesus, you believe in God, but you're kind of just done with church. You're cynical, you're doubtful, you've been struggling with the church, and for a very good reason, because the church is a mess. But the gospel gives you resources to confess the mess. It also gives you rhythms of hope so that you don't have to be locked down by cynicism and doubt and hopelessness about the state of the church. If you're here this morning and you consider yourself maybe one of the duns, I am so glad you're here. It encourages me every single week to see so many, especially young people in the church that may be right there on the edge, but you're still here. Friends, follow Jesus. He's the answer to everything that we're looking for. Or maybe, you know, if you're not one of the skeptical, maybe you're not one of the cynical, maybe you're here this morning and you do love Jesus and you do love the church, but maybe you're just, you're just struggling in life, whether with relationships or work or health or whatever it may be. Confess the mess. The gospel gives you resources for that to say, it's okay. Yeah, maybe there's some sin involved in there somewhere. But it's like childbirth or skin disease. It's just like, yeah, you know, that stuff is kind of the result of sin and death in the world, but you can't really point a straight line to any one thing going on in your life and some specific sin. Yeah, it's messed up in there somewhere, but who knows? It's so complicated. It's so messy. And the gospel just gives you resources to say, yeah, my life is a mess. I'm struggling. I don't even know where the sin in that is, but I'm struggling and I need help. Not only does it give you the resources to confess the mess, it gives you rhythms of hope, rhythms of renewal so that the algorithms and the false facts and the climate change and the gun violence, that none of that has to be the last word in this world. God has the last word because this is a God who takes dead things and brings them to life. That's what the gospel is. Friends, whether you're skeptical or cynical or struggling this morning, wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you, confess the mess. Acknowledge that you need a God to liberate you out of sin and death and embrace the rhythms of hope that the gospel gives you, that God has not just promised a way out of death, he's provided the way out of death in Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to join us as we are following Jesus as he makes all things new. We long for a new reality, don't we? I want to invite you to follow Jesus and experience that reality. Let's pray.